Book Two, Chapter Thirteen of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. McKeith returned without warning the following afternoon. He was not alone, but had spurred on in advance of the other two men he had brought with him. Lady Bridget, reading in her hammock at the upper end of the veranda, heard the sound of a horse approaching and saw her husband appear above the hill from the gully crossing. She got to her feet, expecting that he would ride up to the veranda, calling, Biddy, Biddy, as he usually did after an absence. But instead, he pulled up suddenly, turned his horse in the direction of the bachelor's quarters, and passed from her line of vision. She supposed, naturally, that someone at the quarters had attracted his attention, then remembering that Ninnis and the white men were out with the cattle, wondered, as the minutes went by, who and what detained him. Tommy Hensel running up from the garden with his evening dole of vegetables enlightened her. "'Boss come back, ladyship. I can see him. He is up, talking to mother.' Lady Bridget was too proud a woman to feel petty jealousy, nor would it have occurred to her to be jealous of Mrs. Hensel. Her sentiment of dislike towards that person was of quite another order, but she was just in the mood to resent neglect on the part of McKeith. She went to the veranda railing, when she had a view of the bachelor's quarters, and was able to see for herself that Tommy's report had been correct. She called to the child. "'Go at once, Tommy, and tell the master that I am waiting.' Tommy flew off immediately on his small, sturdy legs, and Lady Bridget watched the scene at the bachelor's quarters. McKeith had dismounted, and with one foot on the edge of the veranda, was facing Mrs. Hensor, who looked fresh and comely in a clean blouse and bright-coloured skirt. The two seemed to have a good deal to say to each other, though Lady Bridget only heard the voices, not the words. Her Irish temper rose at the thought that Mrs. Hensel might be giving him her version of the Wombo episode. She felt glad that the black boy and his gin were comfortably sleeping off the effect of their wounds, and of the plentiful meals supplied them in the hide-house, and thus were not in evidence. When McKeith spoke, it was in a dictatorial angry tone, that of the incensed master, Clearly, however, Mrs. Hensel was not the object of his wrath. Lady Bridget saw little Tommy run excitedly up to deliver her message, and almost cried out to keep him away from the horse's heels, to which he went perilously near. As things happened, the beast lashed out at him, and Tommy had a very narrow escape of being badly kicked. Lady Bridget heard Mrs. Hensel shriek, and saw her husband drag the child to the veranda and examine him anxiously, Mrs. Hensel bending with him. Then McKeith lifted up Tommy and kissed and patted him, almost as if he had been the boy's father. It always gave Bridget a queer little spasm of regret to see Colin's obvious affection for the little fellow. He was fond of children, especially so of this one. Lady Bridget knew, though he had never said so to her, that he was disappointed at there being no apparent prospect of her having a child. And she, with her avidity for any new sort of sensation, although she scoffed at the joy of maternity, felt secretly inclined sometimes to gird at fate for having so far denied her this experience. She herself liked Tommy in her contradictory, whimsical fashion, but now, the fuss over, the boy, who clearly was not in the least hurt, made her very cross, and she became positively furious at seeing McKeith delay yet further to unstrap his valise and get out a toy he must have bought for Tommy in Tunnumburra. Then his grievance apparently coming back on him, he put the child abruptly aside, and leaving valise and horse at the bachelor's quarters, walked with determined steps and frowning visage down the track to the veranda. There his wife was standing, 
very pale, very erect, her eyes glittering ominously. McKeith was through the gate and up the flight of steps in three or four strides. He seemed to sense the antagonism in her, and demanded at once, without waiting to give her any greeting, "'Biddy, what's this I'm hearing about Wombo and that gin?' "'I think you might have asked me before going to Mrs. Hensor for information,' she answered with equal curtness. He stared at her for a moment or two, as if surprised. His face reddened, and his eyes, too, glittered. "'I don't know what you mean. I had to speak to Mrs. Hensor about beds being wanted up there, and of course I asked her how things had been going on.' And did she tell you that she had been inhuman and insolent? Inhuman? Insolent? She spoke to me impudently. She defied my orders. I am given to understand that she was carrying out mine, said McKeith slowly. And if that's so, Mrs. Hensor was in the right. You put that woman before me, before your wife? There's not another woman in the universe I'd put before my wife. But that's no reason for my giving in to her when she does what I know to be folly. I see. You call an act of common humanity folly, doing what one could do to relieve the agony of a fellow creature. I am glad that I differ from you, and from your servant. Mrs. Hensor refused to help that poor gin who had a spear through her arm and was shrieking with pain. Oh, you don't know black gins as well as I do. They'll pretend they're dying in agony just to wheedle a drop of rum or a fig of tobacco out of a white man, and they'll take it quite as a matter of course when one of their men bashes their head in with a nulla nulla. I suppose you'll allow that a spear wound may hurt a little, said Bridget. I believe that you yourself suffered from the effect of one at least. You once told me so. And memory, so active these late days, brought suddenly back the vision of him as he had approached her that evening at Government House. What a great Viking he had looked, in modern dress, of course, but bearing mark of battle in a slight drag of the left leg, only noticeable, she knew now, when he was shy and proud and under, to him, difficult social conditions. But what a man she had felt him to be then, among the other men. It seemed an outrage on her idealised image of him to hear him speaking in that dry, caustic manner. Ah, that's different. The Gulf natives have a nasty way of barbing and poisoning their spears. An ordinary spear thrust is nothing to either black or white. Wombo could have pulled the thing out, and in a few hours the gin would have been all right again. You think so? Well, in a few hours she was in a high fever. I took her temperature this morning when I rebandaged the wound. McKeith laughed shortly. It wouldn't be surprising if you had given her grog and tobacco and as much meat as she wanted. That what you did, eh? Yes, it was. They were both starving. Well, I wouldn't bank on your stock of medical knowledge, Biddy. Not if I was down with fever or otherwise incapacitated. But that's not the point which is that those blacks have been kept here against my express orders. They've been kept here by my orders, flamed Lady Bridget. McKeith's jaw squared, and there showed in his eyes that ugly devil which many a black and white man had seen, but never his wife before. Look here, my lady. There can be only one boss on this station, and now you'll excuse me if I act according to my own discretion. Without another word, he walked up the veranda and down the few steps connecting it with the old humpy. She heard him go into his office, and presently the door of it slammed behind him. She knew that he was going to the culprits in the hide-house, and wondered what punishment he would meet unto them. Had he gone to the office for his gun? At this moment, anything seemed possible to Lady Bridget's heated temper and excited imagination. She stood waiting, absorbed in her fears, 
so abstracted from her ordinary outside surroundings that she was unaware of the approach of two horsemen from the gully crossing. They did not stop at the garden gate, but made for the usual station entrance at the back. One of them, lingering behind the other, gazed earnestly at Lady Bridget's tense little figure and bent head, poised in a listening attitude and conveying to him the impression that something momentous had happened, or was about to happen, and just then appalling shrieks from the rear of the home justified the impression. Lady Bridget ran through the sitting-room to the veranda behind, which again connected on either side the new house with the old humpy and kitchen and store-wing, the hide-house standing slightly apart at the end of the store-building. The shrieks in male and female keys came from the hide-house, and mingled with McKeith's strident tones, fulminating in black slingo. The noise brought Mrs. Hensor and Tommy down from the bachelor's quarters, and the Chinese cook, the Malay boy, and Maggie the housemaid from the service department. The three verandas and garden plot made a kind of amphitheatre, and now, into the arena, came the actors in the little tragedy. From the hide-house, McKeith dragged the prisoners, and threw the gateway in the palings which made the fourth side of the enclosure. With one hand he clutched Wombo, with the other Ula, who in her lace-trimmed petticoat and flowered kimono was truly a tragicomic spectacle. McKeith carried his coiled stock-whip in the hand which held Wombo. It was plain, judging from the state of Wombo's new shirt, that he had given the black boy a thrashing. Oola was unscathed. Of course, Colin could not lift his hand to a woman, though he was a brute and the woman only a black gin. Lady Bridget felt faintly glad at this. She watched the scene, half fascinated, half disgusted, all her attention concentrated on these three figures. She had but a dim consciousness of two men riding round the store-wing and dismounting. One of the two remained in the background, screened by the trails of native cucumber overhanging the veranda end. The other, a wiry, powerful figure in uniform, with a rubicund face, black bristling moustache and beard, and prominent black eyes, reminding one of the eyes of a bull, walked forward and spoke with an air of official assurance. "'Can I be of any use to you, Mr. McKeith, in dealing with that nigger? A bad character, as I've reason to know.' "'No, thank you, Harris. I can do my own dirty jobs,' said McKeith shortly. He had released the pair and now stood grimly surveying them. Oola was crying and squealing. Wombo stood upright, a scowl of hate on his face. His whole nature seemed changed. A flogging will rouse the semi-civilised blacks' evil passions like nothing else. There was something of savage dignity in the defiant way in which he faced his former master. "'What for you been take it stock whip long o' me?' Bow me bad black boy longer you boss what for me no have em gin belonging to me massa catch em bujeri white mary like it gin belonging to him what for no all same black fellow mckeith cut short the argument sound logic it seemed to lady biddy by an imperious silencing gesture and a sudden unfurling of his stock whip which made a hissing sound as it writhed along the ground like a snake the black boy sprang aside McKeith pointed to the gidea scrub and issued a terse command in the native language. Yan, go. Bow you, Woola. Don't talk any more. Yan. Wombo turned appealingly to Lady Bridget. Lady chap. Yan, stormed McKeith again, and as Lady Bridget made a movement of sympathetic response towards the blackfellow, he added sternly, You'll oblige me by not interfering in this business. The blacks know what I say, I mean, and I'll have no more words with them. Bridget stood quite still, her attitude and expression all indignant protest. 
but she said nothing. Her face was turned full towards the man hidden by the creepers, who was watching her with intense interest, but she was unconscious of his gaze. Wombo retreated slowly. Oola cowed, whimpering behind him. Then she made an appeal to Lady Bridget, stretching out her unbandaged arm imploringly. White Mary, you pidney, understand. That fellow medicine man, husband belonging to me, him come close up, longer shrub, throw him spear, nulla nulla. Plenty look out, Wombo. Baal, Wombo got him spear, Baal got him nulla nulla. Suppose black fellow catch him Wombo, my word, that fellow Mumkal, kill. Wombo, Mumkal, Ula, altogether, bong, dead. Yuck, yuck. Lathy chap suppose massa let Wombo sit down longer head station. Two day, three day. Black fellow get tired, up stick. No more look out. No catch him Wombo. Lathy chap, she pleaded. Bujiri you piala. Intercede with. Boss. Lady Bridget came down the steps from the veranda and went up to McKeith. Colin, what the gin says is true. Her tribe will kill them and they have no weapons and no means of protection. Will you, as a favour to me, let them stay for a few days, at least till her arm is healed and the danger past? McKeith hesitated perceptibly. Then the consciousness of weakening resolve made him harden himself the more, made his speech rougher than it might have been. No, I can't, Biddy. I never break my word. They've got to go. He turned fiercely on Wombo, who stood sullen and defiant again and from him to Oola, who crouched in the dust, sobbing pitifully and rubbing her damaged arm. Plenty me sit, boss, close up, tumble down. Die, she wailed. Stop that. Yarn, do you hear? Yarn, yarn. Burry, burry. Go quickly. The whip lashed out again. It stung Wombo's bare leg and flicked Oola's petticoat. The two ran screaming lustily towards the rocks and scrubby country at the head of the gully. Lady Bridget uttered a shuddering exclamation and made an impetuous movement with arms partly outstretched as if to follow the pair. Then her arms dropped and she stood stock still. There was a dead silence. In all the relations of husband and wife, never had there been a moment more crucial as affecting their ultimate future. They looked at each other unflinchingly, neither speaking. McKeith's lips were resolute, locked, his pugnacious jaw set like iron. Here was the stubborn determination of a fighting man, never to admit himself in the wrong, and his eyes seemed to have a steel curtain over them, which, however, had Bridget's spiritual intuition been awake to perceive it, softened for an instant, letting through a gleam of passionate appeal. But Bridget's soul was steel-cased also. He saw only contempt, repulsion in her gaze. The larger issues narrowed to a conflict of two egoisms, it seemed to both as though, in the space of that last quarter of an hour, they had become mortal foes. The police inspector broke in upon the tense silence. Here was another egoism to be reckoned with, malevolently officious. They'll be hiding in the gully, Mr. McKeith. No fear of them taking to the outside bush with the tribe hanging round. I'll just round em up and drive em into the scrub and strike the fear of the law into them. I'll do it now before I turn out my horse into the paddock. No, flamed Lady Bridget. You'll leave those unfortunate creatures alone, or, if you molest them, whether it's by my husband's permission or not, well, you'll find I'm a bad hater, Mr. Harris. The police inspector flushed a deep red. Maybe I'm not such a bad hater either, my lady, 
but with my respects that will do harris interposed mckeith i told you that i'd do my own dirty jobs there's no occasion for you to go against her ladyship's wishes harris touched his helmet to lady bridget and leering with veiled enmity replied i'm never one to put myself up against the ladies except where my duty comes first and that's not the case yet but as i was saying with my respects my lady mr mckeith knows very well how to treat the blacks he knows that you've got to keep your word to them whether that means a plug of tobacco or a plug of cold iron lady bridget drew back and looked at harris for a second or two with an expression of the most withering haughtiness then without a word she turned her back on him the inspector infuriated muttered in his throat mckeith interposed sharply bridget harris is going to stay the night ah at the bachelors quarters lady bridget smiled with distant calm of course mrs henson knows i'm sorry i can't ask mr harris to dinner at the house this evening now by the social canons of the bush the police inspector being technically speaking of higher grade than the casual traveller should have been accepted as a parlour visitor he would have thus occupied one of the spare bachelor rooms in the old humpy and would have joined the boss and his wife at dinner harris had never before stayed the night at mungar and he had confidently expected to be received with honour thus he regarded lady bridget's speech as an insult oh i'm not one to force my company where it's not wanted he blustered i'm quite content with a shakedown at the quarters though if i'd known i might have gone by the short cut with the specials it's rather late however to push on to breezer downs where though perhaps i say it as shouldn't i'm sure of a welcome from mr and mrs windet being so to speak for law and order the representative of his majesty in the lura district lady bridget smiled with detached amusement as she turned again and patted the head of an elderly kangaroo dog which came up to her with its tongue out and a look of wistful inquiry in its bleared eyes scenting plainly that something was amiss good dog vino she murmured harris bridled i'll bid you good evening then my lady he said stiffly no doubt mr mckeith will spare me half an hour in the office by and by just to concert our measures for the proper protection of the pastoralists and the safeguarding of the woolsheds this shearing season yes yes of course mckeith answered mechanically the spunk had gone out of him as harris would have phrased it and the inspector looking at lady bridget guessed the reason and what now about the gentleman from leichardt's town mr mckeith will i be taking him up with me to the bachelor's quarters or maybe harris added unpleasantly her ladyship won't object to having him in the house mckeith muttered angrily damn i'd forgotten it was not like him to lose himself during working hours in even a momentary fit of abstraction except indeed when he was riding without immediate objective through the bush his eyes were still upon his wife's slight figure as she moved slowly towards the veranda with the air of one who has no more concern with the business at hand her graceful aloofness which he knew to be merely a social trick stung him inexpressibly the faint bow she had given to harris when he bade her good evening had seemed to include himself it galled him that he did not seem fitted by nature or breeding to cope with this kind of situation the half-consciousness of inferiority put him still more at disadvantage with himself biddy wait please he said dictatorially she paused at the steps her hand on the railings her eyes under their lowered lids ignoring him he went closer and spoke rapidly in a harsh undertone i didn't tell you though i rode ahead on purpose i met a man at tunumburra who said he knew you he's out from england been staying at government house and brought a letter from sir luke tallant 
I hope that at any rate you'll be civil to him. She flashed a quick glance at him, and her eyelids dropped again. But naturally, I'm not in the habit of being uncivil to my friends. And just then, Mrs. Hensor, who loved cheap fiction, said afterwards it was all like a scene out of a book. There appeared in the space between the two wings a man who had strolled unobserved from one side, out of the back of creepers, and who advanced with quickened step to where the husband and wife stood. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen